What's happening? Corey Wong here with the brand new Wong Notes podcast, season one, episode one. You're in on the ground floor, as people say, who are trying to get you to invest in their company or something. But we're not asking anything from you other than to sit back and enjoy these conversations with legends. I'm excited because today we got Joe Satriani. Some people call him Satch. Your parents probably know him from Surfing with the Alien. That's how I know him. My dad had that CD in the house when I was growing up. It's a classic. A must own for any guitar heads. Well, that was decades ago, and Joe Satriani has been putting out great records ever since. He's been putting together things like G3. He's one of the main ambassadors for the instrument in the last couple decades, and just a straight-up guitar player's guitar player. He's also known as being an insane teacher. Hold on a minute. Check out this list. Check out this list. We're talking Kirk Hammett from Metallica. You got Steve Vai. Who's Steve Vai? You've got Charlie Hunter, one of the most original and interesting guitar players of our time. Larry Lalonde from Primus. I even heard that he was a guitar teacher to the guy from Counting Crows and the guitar player of Third Eye Blind. Do, 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 do you know how awesome Joe Satriani is? I do. Dang it. If I only had him as a mentor, I'd be having hit songs since I was 20. Well, I, I don't think that's actually how it is. And he gets into that. He gets into the thing. He talks about his teaching, talks about his students. Funny little Charlie Hunter story in there. You know what? I'm ready to get this thing going. Let's do it. All right, we're all in search of gear all the time because we're guitar players. We like gear, okay? Musicians in general, they call it gas, gear acquisition syndrome, if you will. Now, let's say you're a little gassy. Okay, sorry, that was bad, but I had to. I got I got one product I want to suggest, a Stratocaster. Now, hey, 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 come on. That seems like the most basic suggestion, but I'll tell you what. Fender's making some dope instruments right now. I've been playing a Highway 1 Stratocaster for the last, I don't know how many years, but I did get this new American Ultra Series guitar. It's really awesome. I mean, it just is. I, and I wouldn't be telling you this unless I actually thought so. You probably seen me on their little ads. They're popping up in your algorithm, which I can make an educated guess on because you're listening to a guitar podcast. So there you go. And I'm not the kind of guy who normally uses a humbucker in the bridge, but this guitar, the humbucker is amazing. It's got this coil tap system where you coil tap it and it splits into a single coil, but it doesn't do that thing that a lot of other coil taps do where it just gets quieter and thinner because it's gone from a humbucker to a single coil. It's got something built into it where it compensates for that, which I love. The other pickups are the ultra noiseless pickups, which are great for session work because you're not getting all the buzz and noise in the background, and especially when you're just playing quiet. Or if I'm on stage and I don't turn my volume off, I don't get all the same amp buzz because of the lights around or whatever. Great pickups, classic Strat tone, bubbly warm top end. It's got the bite, it's got the power. That Strat is dope. Great guitar, check them out. They got, if you play bass, hey, tell you what, you better believe I got that ultra J bass to get my Jocko Rocco on thumping away these 16s. Okay, anyways, speaking of Rocco, San Francisco, Bay Area, let's hit this Satriani interview. Hey Joe, thanks so much for being with us today. First off, I got a copy of your new record and I am digging it. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Of course, of course. Well, I play guitar on The Late Show with Colbert a fair amount, and I was on there a few months ago, and Chris Cheney was on with Perry Farrell talking about this record, either like just going right away to record it or he just got done recording it. Either way, he was stoked about recording it. I was excited to hear it. Oh, Chris is amazing. You know, He's one of those guys that I can't think of very many bass players who have the ability to... Uh, to really follow directions uh, to the T, but also to offer up a million different alternatives. Uh, he can play the craziest music. The most conservative approach is easy, as easy for him as uh, the most unorthodox. Um, he always comes with the right gear. 
Um, and of course, he's an exceptional human being, which really helps, you know, when you're in the studio working yeah. really hard, you know. Um, he's got some crazy ideas about how to stay healthy, which is always totally <laughs> part of what, you know, I mean, just having him show us all the crazy planks that he does every day to keep so fit is scary. But uh, but he knows how to rock out, which is which is why I like to have him in the session. Yeah, and it's it's funny because he's got such a wisdom about it, but he's also he's one of those cats that just has nothing to prove. He knows he's great. He's going to play the appropriate and the right thing. It's cool. It's fun to watch him do that. It's always better too. I mean, it's an interesting process. You know, we're in you're in the studio. You're uh, you know your emotions are running high. Uh, if you're the guy running the show, there's all that extra anxiety about the entire project, let alone what's happening minute to minute. Yeah, and you need someone who can be crazy, but also has a very cool head about him that uh, you know can keep track of what's actually happening and ev everything that he offered up turned out to be the right thing in the end. And, and that's why I brought him back, because we, we did the Unstoppable Momentum record together, and he really impressed me with that ability of just always doing the right thing. And you may not notice it at the moment, but at the end of the day or three weeks later when you do an overdubs, you go, oh, that's why he did it like that, because it works. <laughs> it's funny. I've, I actually feel that sometimes when I play live with certain drummers, I think, oh man, I want more energy. I want more energy. I want more subdivision. And then I listen back to the recording and realize, like, no, the drummer had exactly the right energy and subdivision we needed. It was just like in the moment, it felt like ah. But I just trusted that, like, yeah, you you did what was right. And listening back, oh, sure enough, it was right. That's funny. You say subdivision. I I, I immediately think of playing with Marco Minimum, who is like is such an advanced human being when it comes to subdividing, and. Uh, Boy, I mean, you know, fasten your seatbelt. If you give him just an inkling that, you, you know, that you're going to allow him to go subdivision crazy, good luck trying to follow where he is. <laughs> <laughs> he's He's got such a, uh, a joyous approach to playing music. He's just like a little kid, and he just happens to be like a mathematical genius in his brain when it comes to handling time. It's just nothing phases him. It's It's crazy. Uh, and, and for someone a little bit more challenged like myself, still counting on his fingers, it's like, oh my God, it's exhilarating, but, but I've got to be prepared for it, you know? So sometimes playing with musicians or especially drummers like that, if their groove is insane, if their time is insane, if their subdivision is insane, th there's kind of one of two ways it can go. It's either like, there's nothing I can do to mess up the pocket. I can play anything and it's still going to feel great and it's still going to just be awesome. There's drummers like Michael Bland or Omar Akeem that are like that. Or or and then there's like times where it's there's so much happening. I I don't know. I, I feel like I'm always on edge. I'm I feel like I'm just playing on a house of cards right at any moment I could just be completely off. Is it what what is that what's that like for you in that situation? You know, the thing about time is it's experienced by everybody differently at the same time. And and uh it uh, it's a funny thing, you know. You you're you're playing. A, let's say you got a part. You obviously you've thought about this part. You ha you're expecting something to happen, and this expectation is what can hold you back sometimes with what's happening with the groove. You run on stage, let's say, to start a song, and you might be excited. You may be a little slowed down because you had a burrito before the show. I don't know. Maybe you had a couple of shots of tequila and you're just racing. The drummer, perhaps, you know, in the most perfect physical space possible for the show, maybe doesn't care about the audience. You know, who knows where the bass player's hat is at, you know. And, and it, so everyone starts to play this groove at a different spot. Mm -hmm. And then you got people in the audience that are in every single person is in a different location in the audience. So they're hearing a different mix. So when you step back and you look at it, like if you are hovering over the scene in a club and you're watching this thing unfold itself, you say, well, this is, you know, I mean, as musicians, we say, well, you know, you can play on the beat, ahead of the beat, behind the beat, whatever, in mm -hmm. easier parts. But actually, it's deeper than that. I think it's more human than that. It's more, uh, it's unbelievably fractured and complex. And there's no way to actually 
define definitively like what the groove is because everybody's experiencing it and hearing it in a different way. So you, with that in mind, and I walk on stage, I realize I know I'm going to feel this different than everybody else in the band because I'm different. I'm feeling different right now. I did different things. And the person sitting in the back where there's a bass bump at 100 hertz that's out of control, they're hearing something entirely different than my guitar tech is standing on the side of stage looking at me thinking, why is Joe playing like that? You know? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it makes me think sometimes that like you, not to get too hung up on the intricacies of what you expected, but you just got to be live. You just got to be so present and, and just go with what's happening. And, uh, and, and don't, as I learned from Lenny Tristano many, many years ago, don't be judgmental when you're playing. You just got to be. Living in the moment. <laughs> yes. So do you do you compensate knowing that? Do you rely more on the moment or rely more on, I know that my instincts are this, I know that 120 BPM is this, but my heart is racing, so I'm going to control it? Or is your method, and I'm sure it's different each time, but do you think more about what you know is to be right? And I say right in quotation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, think about, I think about the moment because uh, I know that right before I step on stage, my whole body is saying, don't go out there, mm. uh, whatever you do. I'm petrified. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a front person. Uh, and uh, I'm more comfortable uh, sitting in my studio with the guitar than I am standing in front of an audience. And then once I step out there, some other you know, uh, beast comes out of my personality. And, uh, but I've learned over the years, trust the drummer. You yeah. Know? Because I'm I'm all amped up. I just went through this weird, you know, two second catharsis of personality where I went from introvert to extrovert. So where do I know, you know, uh, where things are really supposed to sit? So I just listen to everybody, make sure I'm fitting in with everybody, and and it, it always turns out to be the right thing. You brought up something, kind of like changing your persona when you get on stage. I know a lot of people have a certain outfit they wear that's like. Superman thing where it's like, all right, I know if I, when Superman puts on the outfit, he's Superman, but until then, he, you know, he's not. And, uh, for you, I kind of, I recognize you as a personality. I recognize your persona with the, with the shades, with the black shirt, with the, with that specific guitar, uh, the shaved head. It feels like your persona, your artist profile who you are, what you per, what you like, put out as your uh, your character, is is very intentional and thought out. Um, but it also seems as if maybe uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but starting to see that shift from like after 1995, after your the self titled album, it's like that's where all of a sudden there's a change in look and even a little bit change in sound and a change in feel. Is that intentional? Can you speak to what your, because you have, you know, uh, some level of, of fear of going out on stage. Some people would call it stage fright. That might be an overdramatic term, whatever, whatever it is for you. Do you feel like you have assumed you, do you feel like you assume that persona and it empowers you to go out or wh where, where did that all come from for you? Well, it's, it's really, uh, much funnier than uh, what people might imagine. Um, so, uh, I, you know, the whole the hair thing uh, was pretty obvious. I was losing my hair and I had to come up with something that I could manage just on a personal level, you know. All right. And, and, uh, and it came as a whim. I was jogging. The hair was bothering me. I stopped at a corner. I live in San Francisco, so it's an urban environment. There, Walgreens is having a sale on a clipper. I went, I go and I buy <laughs> it. I go home, I shave half of my head, and then I call my wife and my son uh, into the bathroom and they say, hey, check this out. And they're looking at me like, well, there's, you know, you look normal. And then I turn to the other side and I'm all shaved. And it was just a funny <laughs> family moment, but I realized like I got, I'm going through with this, you know? So about a week later, I wind up doing the first show with the with the band, and I show up at the sound check, and I'm wearing a hat and sunglasses. No one's thinking anything different. And then when I take it off, of course, 
they, they're all like shielding their eyes saying, oh my God, <laughs> that is the most awful thing ever. Put a hat, put the hat back on or wear the glasses or something. And it became like a joke. And so when I walked out on stage that night, I put the hat and the glasses on just as a joke. I'd never done that ever before. And I noticed that there was a change in the audience. They just suddenly took me more seriously, perhaps, or thought I was more mysterious than I was. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, mm -hmm. it's kind of warm, so I got rid of the hat, but I thought the glasses are kind of cool. You know, you, you don't have to squint your eyes so much, and it's kind of interesting. And so I just kind of went with it, but it started out, it was because I horrified, you know, Stu and Jonathan, and I was doing them a favor <laughs> by softening the look, you know? Um, <laughs> but then also, personally, it's like, I just, I was never thinking like, you know, I was going to get a wig or I was going to, you know, I was just thinking like, I just have to be Joe. That's it. That's just the way I am always. And, and so I'm not going to get involved in anything more complicated than that. So that, that became easy. I think the, it's a coincidence. I think that the sound started to change. The nineties were crazy for someone who put out records in the eighties anyway, yeah. when it comes to guitar, uh, I mean, I put out The Extremist, which was my love letter to classic rock at exactly the wrong moment uh, when when grunge was taking off. So, um, But it turned out to be a, a great thing to do. It just sort of distanced, distanced me from what was happening, although economically it was kind of hard to get noticed while all this other stuff was happening. So, yeah. But yeah. the 90s were wonderfully cathartic in that way because it kept making all musicians, especially guitar players, really re-examine what it is they liked, what it is they really wanted to do, what was really authentically them, and uh, you know what was just stuff they were doing to you know keep working. Uh, so uh, I had the luxury of being able to do what I wanted to do, so I just kept doing that. I love that. Since we're kind of on the topic of being Joe, being who you are, your artistry, your persona. When I hear, I see you get lumped in with a lot of other musicians, a lot of other guitar players. You're a guitar player's guitar player, but you seem to transcend that. And it's, it's beyond that. You have a much more unique voice. You have a thing to you. You can tell your influence. I can tell when I listen, the lineage of some of the jazz harmony. I can hear some of the Hendrix and blues thing that feels pretty obvious. Um, I can hear a lot of the R and B and rhythm side of things. And maybe that's, maybe that's a Bay area influence in some way, just from one of my favorite bands, tower of power, knowing they're from the similar area, but it seems like there's so much influence that you've taken. What to you is what defines your voice on the instrument. You've got a lyrical way of playing. You play very technical, but there's so much more to it than that. When I listen to your new record, Shapeshifter, there's great rhythm. There's great parts to your records. There's great intentionality. It's more than just, hey, I can play fast, which I think some people lump guitar player, guitar players into that category. What defines to you, like in, in your words, what? how would you describe your voice on the instrument and and who you are when somebody says give me the joe satriani thing what is that to you well first of all i'm immune to it whatever when people say you know give me that joe satriani thing i, I don't know what that is i'm just being me uh i can tell you that you know growing up with parents who were jazz age kids and loved listening to jazz i heard that all the time i heard classical music all the time growing up youngest of five kids so my older siblings lived the late 50s, all of the 60s, full tilt. And when they left the house, they left the records. And so that became my background. And mm. and my influences are just right there for everybody to see. It's so obvious, you know. Um, I like to celebrate the guitar. Uh, I like to celebrate my influences. I like playing things on the guitar that are very guitar-like, yeah. you know. Um, uh, I mean, that's kind of like the hallmark of what you do as well. It's very guitar-like. It's stuff you can do on guitar. It's fun to do on guitar. So so you might as well just yeah. like focus on it, you know, let the horn players do the horn bits and the bass do the bass bit, you know. And, and uh, so I know, I know there's, it's, it's attractive sometimes or exciting to chase after other things, but I've always leaned back on uh, letting 
the composition uh, push the guitar technique to where it needs to go to make the song happen. And in the additional sort of umbrella uh, approach would be to make sure it sounds like a guy playing a guitar and not something else, because then that's that's pointless. Um, sure. And so those two things together, they kind of remind me of Hendrix in a way. I mean, to me, when I listen to Hendrix records, every song was different. He never sort of like uh, promoted his technique. He just played. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just really crazy. That whole like uh, know me for my technique kind of thing came a lot later. It may have been in jazz and I missed it because I'm not a jazz. I'm just a rock and roll age kid, you know, yeah. but um, the players that I grew up loving were so unique and different from Hendrix to Iommi, West Montgomery, Billy Bauer. I mean, they were just so odd when you think about it. Yeah. Alan Holtworth, I mean, it's, he's such an odd character, but so brilliant at the same time. Um, and But their compositions and their compositional desires, I guess, uh, especially with, with somebody like Alan Holtworth, that pushed him to have to develop a way of playing because he, he just had to play those chords. He had to try to step up to Coltrane's, you know, legend and try to, and, and celebrate it, you know? Um, and with interesting guitar technique too, with so much left hand and legato. So, so beautiful. I mean, yeah. I remember seeing him at a small club on Long Island uh, when I was a, a teenager, a place called my father's place in, in Roslyn, Long Island. Yeah. And he, he was on that tour with uh, Tony Williams, Alan Pasqua, and I forget uh, who was playing bass that night. And there he is with the, the SG and uh, and the Marshall with one of the cabinets facing the wall, probably a 50 watt, 71 Marshall, and he had a small stone face shifter. I mean, it was as raw as you can get in a club that holds like 65 people. And <laughs> it must have been such a bummer gig for those guys. But for me, this you know 15-year-old kid in the audience, I, it was heaven. It was like... It was like heaven from another galaxy. I just couldn't believe somebody could play that set of gear like that and make it sound yeah. so beautiful, just cascading legato technique, all the notes that I heard on, on the record. and, uh, and But it was still raw, and because of when I was born and everything, it, it had to sound like rock for me to like it, you know. Um, I, I just, I, I loved it, you know. I, there were so many moments in my life where... It you know the moment reaffirmed my love of 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 uh, music and and musicianship and the rawness of of rock and roll and how it includes all different styles and techniques. It and uh, it seems to have no barriers to it. You know, um, I still love that. All right, folks, this is a fun conversation. We got to pause for a second. I told you about the Stratocaster at the beginning of this episode. Now I'm here to tell you about that American Ultra Telecaster. That thing is dope. All the bite, all the crunch, everything that you want from rock to country. I use a telly for that Prince rhythm sound. It's great. And the American Ultra right now is my axe of choice. Okay, let's get back to it. You've been known to be a great teacher. And speaking of artistic voice and just like finding your thing, the first I heard of the legend of Joe Satriani as a teacher and why it was it was a good idea to have Joe as a teacher was from my friend Charlie Hunter. Charlie told me that he had some experience with you when he was on the scene. He was like, if you want to figure out your thing, get with Joe. And uh, he speaks very highly of you as a teacher. And when I look at the list of many of your... Uh, students or understudies, whatever you want to call it, apprentices, I don't know, what, whatever you want to call them, people that you've been able to give advice to on the guitar. There's so many interesting players. There's Charlie Hunter, who has such a unique voice on the instrument and something very specific. Steve Vai, who has a specific, interesting voice on the instrument. Larry Lalonde from Primus, who has such a sound and such a thing to the way that he plays. Kirk Hammett from Metallica. There's so many people that you have been a teacher to that have, to me, such iconic voices on the guitar and beyond just guitar just music in general it feels like they have been able to also make a fingerprint on music 
And I think that's probably a testament to the way that you approach music and the way that you teach it to others. Uh, what's the secret, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, you have to be lucky enough to have like brilliant kids walk into your door. You know, I mean, God, uh, it's so it's so I mean, how can I possibly figure out and explain that I grew up in the same town with Steve I that we had the same music theory teacher in high school in a little public school in a teeny little town. And we were both just crazy Italian American kids who wanted to be rock stars. You know, I mean, it's just so random. Uh, and and uh, I mean, Charlie's story is so funny because. I knew his mother because she was a luthier who worked at the store. The only reason why I was teaching at that guitar store was because I lived across the street. I never bought anything at the store, but the owner got so upset with me, he basically convinced me I should teach. So, uh, you know, I'd have some money to buy something there, you know. <laughs> and uh, I was really trying not to go back to guitar teaching. I just really wanted to get a gig that would that would pay the bills better, you know, but, um, mm -hmm. so anyway, what, you know, one day, uh, Jane comes in and she goes, Oh my God, Joe, take, will you do something with Charlie is driving me crazy, you know? So that's my introduction to little Charlie. But of course he was a joy cause he was just 100% talent all mm -hmm. the time. Yeah. Couldn't contain him, you know, and, uh, very much like Steve, I in, in that, uh, it was very motivated, even though they may not have been able to express it, you know, intellectually at their young age, because uh, I met mm -hmm. Steve when he was 12. Uh, but you could tell right away that they just had the the power, the energy, uh, and, and the talent within them to really do something, to go somewhere. They knew what they w wanted, which was so important, you know, because um, it's hard to play. It's hard to be great. Easy to be good, but it's really hard to be great. But these guys were yeah, destined yeah. to be great. So I think part of the secret is you got to figure out what they're good at, what's pointless to try to make them practice. Like if they're <laughs> not, you know, fast scurriers across the fretboard, just don't bother with that stuff, you know, and uh, so on and so forth. If someone really wants to do vibrato without grabbing the neck, don't try to force them to change their vibrato. Just let them develop it on their own. Um, I think the most important thing is don't change them, is don't make them ever play like you is you have to somehow lead them to themselves. There's such a big pressure for young kids to be like everybody else. It's like yeah, nobody yeah. wants to be different, right? That just comes later. And for some reason, we hit our 20s and we just want to be individuals. But when you're 12, when you're 14, you're 16, you just really want to fit in with the group that you identify with. Um, and, uh, I, you know, having spent 10 years sitting in a small room at a guitar store teaching kids that are as young as eight and grown-ups that were older than me, you know, in their 60s. Uh, I got to see a, a slice of humanity. It was quite interesting. And, and uh, there, there's a lot of psychology that goes into it. Uh, but uh, young people are absolutely amazing. It's just like a miracle when they walk in the door and you you're looking at somebody like a Kirk Hammett or an Alex Skolnick, and you can just tell they've got the three most important things. They have the brain, they have the heart, and they have the physical talent to, to be unstoppable. And uh, so you just want to kind of give them all the info and then step aside. <laughs> That's great. So what's your, what's your biggest piece of advice to somebody who's not just trying to sound like their mentors or, or their heroes. Somebody doesn't, if, if there's, like I hear a lot of people, I get asked questions online a lot about this. People that are in college, that have the technique, that have worked out the thing, but maybe spent a little too much time working their scales and arpeggios, and they can't seem to find their own sound. They can't seem to find their own voice. They're, they're having a hard time doing that. That is really, really hard. Um... I, I'm not sure I got a, a you know a, a good sentence or, or soundbite for that. I could tell you a funny story once when I was uh, taking lessons from Lenny Tristano, and I I didn't really belong there, but uh, Lenny was great. He really helped me in so many different ways. And anyway, the situation in the in his house there, you you wound up waiting in this teeny little room with a lot of other students all the time because Lenny was never on time. And I got invited to a Lenny Tristano student party. 
And uh, I didn't know any of these people at all. And I didn't look like them at all either. I was still like motorcycle boots, Black Sabbath, Zeppelin. You know, that's kind of like where I was at at the time. Mm-hmm. And these these guys were not quite deadheads, but they looked like somewhere between bebop and deadheads. And they had this party. And I just remember sitting there for a few hours watching all of them play. And they were all brilliant, but they all were imitating Lenny. It was the same thing. Everyone would sit down at the piano and do, 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 It was beautiful, breathtaking. But I'm like, where's this going? Like, they just sound like a, you know, a junior version of what Lenny did in like 1940. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah. uh, and it just didn't seem right to me, you know. Um, and, but there's a lot of that that goes on. And uh, sometimes you think, well, um, there, there's nothing wrong with, first of all, with anything. There are no rules. There's, there's, there's actually, there's no negative to it because really what it is, it's just music being celebrated. Mm-hmm. But if you refine your question to say, how do you, what, what's your advice to someone who wants to get a job playing music, then it's a different story. Because Let's say, you know, it's your Aunt Betty and she doesn't want a job playing music. Maybe she's a lawyer and she's got a job. But when she comes home, she wants to play like Monk. So your advice to her would be quite different than if, you know, Betty was your twin sister and she said, man, I need a gig. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? You'd be, it would be very different, right? So I often think about that and I thought about that a lot when when. I was teaching because there would be the eight-year-old and of course they don't have a care in the world and they would come in and put their plastic model on the top of the amp and then pick up their guitar and play. Then there'd be Kirk Hammett and he had some specific needs right away because he was making a record or going on tour and he wanted to understand something. Mm -hmm. And then I'd have a guy who was a race car driver who'd come in and, you know, just had a bad day at the track or something and he just wanted to relax. So how could I possibly come up with the same advice for those three people? <laughs> yeah, that's a good. Yeah, that's a great point for those people. For those people that are like the Kirk Hammetts, like the Steve Vai's, the Larry Lalons in training right now, the Charlie Hunters out there that have yet to be discovered. Uh, what is it about a guitar player like that? What What is it that makes a guitar player iconic? I think that the, the uh, some of the coolest things that I've witnessed on stage. Uh, especially during the G3 concerts, is um, just the guitar players having this confidence to walk out on stage and invite danger, you know, the danger of the moment. And, um, and it's, it's come from so many different sources. Uh, you know, like you, you wouldn't think that John Petrucci uh, and Robert Fripp and Kenny Wayne Shepard and Uli John Roth, Steve I, Ingve would, you know, would have things in common, but... The, the one thing they all have in common is that they're not afraid to walk on stage and not know what's going to happen. Literally not know what the other guy's going to throw at them over and over again in front of a couple of thousand people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, not everyone is comfortable sitting next to a couple of people who are going to shred them to death. And it's going to happen. You know, <laughs> you're yeah. not going to be the best guy every night. It's, you know, you'll, you'll miss a beat or whatever. And the, the guy next to you is just having a great time, you know. So uh, those moments really are, uh, make me think that there's got to be some kind of training for that in a way. Because we, we all have the same information available to us, especially today. Right now in 2020, anything that you and I can think of, there's got to be a million websites that, that have it up. That, and, it's and, insane. And, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, people are showing it and displaying it. And uh, but the the way that you absorb it and the way that you say, I got this and you walk out on stage and and you say, I'm going to just stand next to whoever, you know, whomever, I think is the right way to to syntax there. Um, And I'm just going to see what happens. You know, Uh, I don't know what's how it's going to be thrown at me. You know, am I standing next to Steve? I am I standing next to Corey? I don't know. Like what what's he going to? throw at me what kind of shape and how am I going to respond uh, there needs to be some kind of training for that so I I, I tend to uh, tell even the youngest students like you know don't practice exercises to death because you'll never 
you no one will ever pay to see you do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and plus, you'll just get good at it. And no one wants to hear that. People need music, and we're musicians, so it's our job to make music for people. Uh, and and so think about that. Like if you if you're doing something that doesn't lead to playing music for people to make them feel good or to help them commiserate or whatever it is that you that they're using you for, then it's probably pretty useless beyond like 10 minutes. Like, so yeah, you got some weird <laughs> geometric sh- shape that makes you feel all bent out of shape when you do it. You can go ahead and have fun with it, but for God's sake, don't play it more than 10 minutes in a day. We yeah, all have yeah. a very short amount of time to practice and so make sure you do stuff that leads to playing music for people and you know lifting their spirits in some way. Um, and that's that kind of, a, it's a gentle reorientation of it mm-hmm. it gets you out of the school mentality gets you out of the sports mentality um and then i tell them something that they generally never like to hear which is i tell them there's no reward for good behavior and and it, <laughs> that usually freaks them out but uh, i just have to tell them you could be the best student in the world and the the total fuck up next to you is the guy who gets the hit single it's just one of those things so don't think that there's a reward for practicing and moving that metronome, you know, one sure, click sure. higher, there actually isn't. It's mm-hmm. it's. Well, I think it's about connecting with people and connecting with an audience on a human level as well. It, it, that's the only thing. That is the only thing. <laughs> and actually, that is the only thing because everything else will get learned. You know that anything that you do that you post on YouTube will be learned by a seven-year-old somewhere in the world in less than 24 hours. And, you know, and it, and then it, it reminds you like, oh, that's right, it's not the technique, right? It's the, yeah. Because anything can be learned and mastered and they'll do it better than you. Because, you know, I mean, if you're 20, you're already old. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> young people have got so much physicality going for them and they have such a great tunnel vision. It's just sort of, you know, Muscles, tendons, nerves, hormones, what else they got to worry about, you know? And the entirety of, of human knowledge up until this point is accessible at our fingertips with the internet. <laughs> I mean, it's really exciting because it just means that the, this whole thing has been accelerated. Uh, but it will, t- I think it will take, uh, I mentioned this before, you know, about. Uh, noticing a student's limitations you know mm-hmm. um and sometimes it's sh- their limitations is shared with their knowledge that they have limitations you know and with what it is that they want to accomplish and so and i saw that in teaching that you know like sometimes there would be you know kirk hammett would come in and he'd say this chord progression does not fit anywhere. How do I develop a solo over a chord progression that's never in one key, you know, and still make it rock, right? And then uh, David Bryson would come in and, and he'd say, I just really need to understand keys and how chords can fit in one key and what key complements the other. And please, I'm not interested in scales and soloing. You know what I mean? And yeah. you have two different bands there, right? <laughs> that. Mm-hmm you know, that are represented in these two players, but they have the same drive. Yes. That You know what I mean? It's really admirable. They know what they want. They know what they like. They're ready to work as hard as they can possibly work. It just so happens they are in different scenes like you can't imagine, you know? Totally. Well, you had also talked a little bit about it. And first off, you seem very self-aware, which is cool. And I think that actually speaks a lot about the way you play and the way that people connect with your music. Uh, you have a, a very human element to to the way that you talk about music. And that, that actually just translates in when you play it. Uh, an element of that that I would love to hear you talk about, because you've played with so many different musicians. You've played with so many different guitar players with different personalities in a role of leadership and in a role of being a supporting person or a collaborator. The thing I'm wondering about is how you approach collaboration when... It's not everybody like, hey, yeah, we're down for this together. But when there is the presence of a strong ego on the stage or in the room, how do you personally either, I guess, for, the, for lack of better terms, how do you deal with that? And how do you kind of disarm that moment and 
like it would be good. I think some people just need to hear that word from you of like, hey, don't be a prick or, you know, what, what do you have to say to the, to the ego side of things? Yeah, that's a, boy, every situation you find yourself in where that pops up, it's new and it's different. So I don't think there's a, there's one answer for that. We've certainly, uh, you know, over the years in making albums, first of all, uh, had to deal with that. And usually because it's, it's in a more private setting, you can take somebody aside and mm. say, you know, you're a dick and, you know, you're screwing this up and stop doing that, you know. Um, when you're in a public situation, like with, with the G3 shows, that's kind of difficult. And I find as a leader of a tour, when you find yourself in a position like that, everything is from the top down. The whole vibe of the tour is start just starts with you. So you do have to be very careful that you're not reactionary. Um, and, and, you know, and keep in mind that sometimes a good idea comes from the worst person, <laughs> which, yeah. you know, you don't want to admit it, right? When, when uh, the screw up comes up with the great idea, you know, but you, you have to be selfless like that. You have to realize, okay, this might be, you know, this is coming from a bad place, maybe at the wrong moment, but maybe there's something to it. And uh, so, yeah, you got to check yourself. I think, don't you, you know, no matter what, even if you're in charge, you just got to always check yourself to make sure you're not the one that's being the dick. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I've noticed too, with playing with other musicians is the ones that have the least amount of ego are the ones that have the most, they're, they're most in tune with their voice. Somebody like Charlie Hunter he and I are both such rhythm section groove junkies. Like when, when he and I sit down and play together, we can just jam and just play rhythm and, and just work off of each other because we have such a different thing, but it's also kind of in the same, like he has such a unique thing with obviously with the bass and comping at the same time. And I have a percussive rhythmic thing. So our rhythmic styles blend well, but in a lead setting, like with a bunch of lead players, it can kind of get interesting on how to do that. But I do notice that the guys that are more secure in their own voice are just like, yeah, man, I'm just happy to do what I do. I got, I, you know, some people are going to connect with what I do. Some people are going to connect with what you do. And it's not, it, and it's hard to even quantify what's better. Like, sure. Some, but some people are like nailing their lines better one night over the next. But I think the the reality is that sometimes people connect with, soaring lyrical lines and some people connect with super fast shredding lines yeah yes <laughs> well you know when i uh when i was starting g3 and everybody said no uh the managers and, and artists alike you know i the what i the way i explained to them was this i said look everyone in the audience has already decided who their favorite is and there's nothing that you can do that's going to change your mind that's again very self-aware. I love that. Go on. Sorry. So, so I'd say you know let's just start from there. So when we come out, we're not selling the you know the latest single. We're not pushing our our latest guitar or whatever it is that we're trying to do. Actually, that part of the show's over. Now we can go out and connect with the audience to say let's celebrate the guitar together. Audience musicians. Everybody lets their guard down. Everybody starts to show more of their roots because they don't have to project their image that they're trying to sell along with all their, their partners, you know, the record company and the manufacturers and everything. So I would try to sell it to them as a kind of a, uh, uh, um, that they're, they, they can relinquish all this anxiety that's tied up with coming out with a new album and everything in their image and, and just relax and just have fun and see what happens. And that I'm not out to shred anybody. And, you know, there are rules. Everybody gets a certain amount of time to play. It's all equal. It's all fun. And just look at me. And when it starts to get repetitive, I'll cue the song back in. And there we go. And, and you know, after that first gig we did with Eric Johnson and Steve I, they both of them came back and they were like, now we get it. Yeah. <laughs> but I could understand before it happened they didn't really know that it was going to happen, that they would get this love from the audience that was so unique to, to what it was that we were presenting uh, that was going to be so different than what they get when they're just doing their presentation of their latest album, you know. That's a whole different thing, you know. And 
But they, they, the audience appreciates so much that we would do that, that we would show them all the funny little things in our musical closet, you know, that we picked up over the years. And that's what happens when you go and, and you know, you, you start playing material that they've never seen you play before and that you're sharing. And they see so much of what we do and we don't really, we're immune to it. We It's just going by us, we're working but they're taking it all in at once and they're standing next to each other and they're having fun and they're in a location and you know what I mean? It's such a big experience for the audience and, and you, you need to tap into that, you know? Yeah, that's great. And I, I, when I think about all those G3 tours, there are so many of them, like when I, and, and when the way that you talk about the guitar in the 90s, it sounds to me like in the 90s, you had... All these cats, and and for you know the last 20, 30 years, you've had all these cats that were like yourself that were ambassadors for the guitar in that era. And now you guys, many of you have become icon status, where it's like you're the legends, you're the ones that all of us as as like now kind of like I'm feeling like uh for myself, like uh falling into this role as an ambassador for the guitar to my generation and for for right now trying to figure out like oh there's so much music that's gone electronic but there is really there's a lot of music that does work well with guitar and the guitar still is an important thing in music as an ambassador for the guitar now uh speaking to a guitar icon yourself what do you have to say and what advice do you have for those of us that are like the guitar is cool everybody should use it for those of us that are trying to um continue to keep it in the zeitgeist if you will yeah that's wow that is uh that's quite a request i mean i don't know what you can do i don't think you can do anything uh about that i i remember you know like uh being in the studio in 95 and and uh in a moment where i was pondering something you know which way to go uh glenn john said to me uh, in his wonderful accent, he goes, you know, Joseph, it's not your job to decide what people will like and what people will not like. It's your job to play your bloody guitar. So go out there and play your bloody guitar. You know, it was, <laughs> it was just real, a really good kick in the ass just to get out there and just don't think about the consequence. Yeah. You know? And and uh, and that it's, you know, what you just said kind of reminds me of it because it, there is you can't. Uh, plan these things out. You, you can't say, I'm going to wear the black jeans and the red glasses and I'm going to play this. Yeah. I'm going to stretch fingers like that and everyone's going to go, yes! <laughs> <laughs> Corey has shown us the way. Uh, you know, you just, you you know, you can't make people, uh, you know, uh, drink the, the Kool-Aid. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's it may seem like you can, but you actually you can, and it's pathetic to think that you would live your short life that way. Is you know, it's I mean, musicians, it's a tough life anyway. Just finding work and keeping working and everything, and to waste your time thinking that you can please people uh, by figuring something out. I mean, you just can't, it's not figurable. Figure yeah. figurable is that a word? Figure outable. <laughs> yeah, it's it works now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's. I think it's wasted energy. Uh, totally. I, I remember I was doing a signing at a NAMM show once, and this young woman came up to me and she said, "Like, oh, I want to know, like, the secret. How did you do it? And how did you reach all these people?" And 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 I'm thinking, like, wow, she is asking me these questions, and and there is no answer that's a mechanical answer. You know, like, do 60 push-ups every day, get a good lawyer, get a good haircut. You know play a Fender guitar, whatever it is that you might come up with or something. And I just said, you know, nobody knows what's happening on the planet. Nobody knows why we're here. Everyone is looking to everybody else to explain life to them. To just, We just need to hear everybody else's story so that we can get a handle on just what the fuck is going on. And I said, everybody wants to hear your story. So don't copy somebody else's story. Don't echo what's you know what what is hip what's uh fashionable you have to work on telling your story like the way that you know the way you see life because of the li who you are and the life you've lived and put that into music and tell us that story yeah and that seems to be again just an overwhelming thing of coming back to 
being you. For you, it's just being Joe. I don't know what it is to be me, but I'm just going to be me and play like me. I don't know when people ask me to play like me. I just do it. And it. I think what's funny is like, you know, people ask those sort of questions, but it it might seem absurd for us as musicians to think of the same question regarding um, other fields of art. Like, how can I be Pablo Picasso? How can I be Salvador Dali? Or how can I, you know, it's like, well, that's a totally different thing. And if you think about trying to paint or sculpt like them, just because you have the same tools or use the same practice techniques, your stuff's just going to look way different. And the same thing for music. And I think sometimes if we can think about art in those ways, think about different forms and expressions of art, it can uh, really drive home how absurd it is to just try to be somebody else because it's not going to be that. And the best thing just being like, and the most iconic visual artists, the most iconic musicians are those people that have just come up with their own thing, their own identity in their artistic expression. Absolutely. Um, uh, I, you know, I, last year when we were out doing the, the Hendrix tour, um, it, I mean, the whole thing being immersed in playing those Hendrix songs, first of all, was just so wonderful and crazy anyway, because the songs were so light, so few mm-hmm. parts, and yet cre- recreating that magic that Jimmy did was just like some kind of odd alchemy. It was so mysterious, so much fun. Um, and then we're out there and Dick Dale had passed away and I started to really get in deep into his life story. And I thought, wow, what a what an unusual story, uh, what an unusual history, family history that led him uh, and his music to where it has arrived today and how people see it. You, you just can't figure that you can't dream that stuff up, you know, and mm-hmm. and even could he, you know, he was just living it. And he just did what was him, you know, what was part of his background. And it led him to become an icon and to represent a particular style. He didn't sit down and think about that. You know what I mean? Yeah. With a a legal pad and and a pencil and say, okay, now this is how I become an icon over several decades. You know, he was just trying to survive and have fun at the same time while playing his guitar. Uh, and he had his own challenges. Uh, so, um, it, it, uh, it again and again, life illustrates itself to me that, the you know, the art of being original is actually just being yourself. And, um, the, the, you know, you couple that with the ideas that you understand there's probably no reward for good behavior and uh, that, uh, but it's a good idea to be prepared for luck. And that's another thing that's extremely important to tell students of the instrument and the entertainment industry that you need to be prepared for luck. As silly as it may seem, it's just like a, a little kid laying out their clothes for school, you know, the, the night before. It seems like a silly thing. Like, you know where your clothes are. It's not like you're going to forget in the morning, right? Yeah. But, why do you lay it out? Well, to be prepared, right? So, but like a musician, same, same way, right? They before they go to a gig, they go, okay, I got seven picks, I got an extra pack of strings, I got an extra cable in case my, you know, you prepare, and uh, and when you look at your whole life as a musician, as a composer, you ask yourself, am I prepared for that phone call? You know, mm-hmm. like what if Corey calls me and and. And he says, "Come down to the gig. You got anything?" And you and you go, "Shit, I didn't work on anything. <laughs> I'm not prepared to show off, you know." But we have to. It's called show business for a reason. So we're supposed to be prepared to show off, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think also for those musicians that are in college that really want to get their thing going, and it's like, "Yeah, can you come out on tour with me for three months?" They're like, "Well, I got to be away from home for three months." It's like, "Well." What did you think was going to happen when you spent all that time, you know, working on that thing and trying to get a tour? This is what touring is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, it's a, oh, well, it's crazy. It's, it's absolutely crazy. But, uh, you know, getting your head around all the things that present, uh, will present you as a musician, it, it's an ongoing thing. There's, there's no way to fully prepare for life um, other than to be 
ready to spring into action. <laughs> yeah, and and totally. always to think, what's the most positive way that I can respond to this? You know, it's always going to be the right way to do it. You know. Yeah, I have one last question for you. One last topic because. Uh, as I look at your career, as I look at your breadth of work, the type of touring you've done, solo touring, G3, the types of events you've put together, the types of collaborations you've put together, it suggests to me that you know what you're doing when it comes to business and industry. And you have probably surrounded yourself with a team or a handful of people that uh, are trusted in in helping with those decision-making things. You put out your first album, I guess, over 30 years now, which is inc- ago now, which is incredible. The industry has changed so much since then. If you were to get going right now, you had all the skill, all the wisdom, and all the knowledge that you have of the industry and how things work. Let's pretend that you still have all that. It's just that nobody else knows you yet. You're at zero followers on Instagram. You're at zero YouTube subscribers. You're at three people showing up to your gig just because they walked up to the door. Where, what are your first few steps? What is that? How do you get your trajectory started? And what, what would that look like for you today? Uh, well, um, you know, you got to have something to show people and to listen to. And, uh, so you got to make something, uh, first of all, um, I would, you know, uh, I think back to, um, uh, outside the squares rehearsal barn and there was a big dumpster for the Nolo press and they had all those how to books with tear out sheets for starting businesses and whatever. And I, and I took one of them home, uh, and I started a record company and a publishing company and I put out a record when there was no request for any of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, taught myself how to do books. I became a record executive overnight. And um, and eventually through this magazine called Sonic Option, I wound up having to just mail my record around the world and and just told record stores, just sell it. And if you can, you know, or play it, do whatever you want with it. You don't owe me any money. And uh, so I learned that sometimes you got to give away stuff for free, uh, but you still have to put in the work and you got to take the chance. You actually, you have to be, uh, productive and uh, back then in 1984, I can't believe it was that long ago. And uh, Rubina Records put out my first EP with no drums, bass, or keyboards on it that most people played at the wrong speed because <laughs> I was an idiot not to make it more clear. Um, it was a great step forward in me just you know putting who I was forward and not trying to to blend in with the crowd. So. Uh, you know, the, the way that I see the parallels well today is, is that you got these great uh, uh, platforms, social media, it's completely democratized, you know, and uh, the but the biggest problem is, is you wind up being a drop in the largest, you know, proverbial ocean of entertainment, whatever uh, people have ever seen. So how do you stand out? And once again, be, by being like other people, you're doing yourself a disservice. And, uh, you know, so you, you have to be original, uh, but let's put it this way. If you have decided to play out of time and out of tune, most likely you will get fewer people enjoying your music rather than if you were playing in tune and in time. That's just a little observation (laughs) that I've noticed listening to music for the, you know, that's been written for the last 400 years. That, uh, you know, people get kind of bugged out when it's out of time, it's not grooving, and if it's out of tune and in the wrong key. Uh, I used to tell people, uh, when people used to ask me about, you know, scales and, and, and how to hit the right note and stuff, and I'd say, well, you know, let's say you're writing for a score, and, uh, and I, you know, I play, I'm like, uh, I, the last time I did this, Steve and I were on stage, and I asked Steve to play a, an E chord, you know, and I said, you know, there's a, there's a, a little scene in a movie and a baby's taking its first steps walking down the hallway towards you and you could play these notes. And of course, I just played some notes in the E major scale. And I said, let's just imagine that the baby is covered in blood and it's holding a kitchen knife and it's coming towards you. Uh, I said, now what do I play? And of course, I played all the wrong notes and it fits the scene very well. 
Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. when you when you think about how music is used in in films, you can see in a in a in a overt way how it's going to work in let's say a club. So if you are making music for a dance club and your track comes on and it's not in time, it's just going to fail. It's going to be like the baby with the bloody kitchen knife walking towards you with, you know, cross eyes or something. It's just going to make you feel very uncomfortable. And uh, if you're playing in a blues club and uh, everything is on the beat and nothing's sagging and dragging and there's no questionable thirds, people are going to think it's got no soul in it. So, (laughs) you know, you have to really think about the reality that music is made for people in particular contexts and um and so when you hit that social media thing uh you think about what it is you're trying to do you know it's so it's so important to to answer your question directly i would yes get that instagram TikTok thing happening. I'm not sure what's happening with Facebook, but you know, every, every couple of years there's a there's a new platform that seems yeah. to be taken off. Uh, but reach your audience, know your audience, reach them, uh, and uh, you know, and and do it do it the right way. Don't do it the wrong way. And in, in terms of you know the the music and the timing and the, all that kind of stuff, you know, um, I I think it's I think it's obvious when you're in the middle of a um, a, tr- a musical trend, you know best what your audience is going to like. And so yeah. if you're doing some kind of crazy math rock, well, make sure it sounds like, what, you know, the right thing. It's going to push the buttons properly. Um, well, and I think that's, that might be more obvious to you. Some people do take the approach of, oh, yeah, if I just sound like these other people, then I can uh, kind of get in and then I can do my own thing. But I, I think you're right in, in finding a way to make yourself sound unique amongst the entire ocean of possible like there are hundreds of thousands of amazing guitar players online what makes anybody want to listen to me being aware of that audience i think again speaks to your big picture thinking and your awareness that not everybody thinks about so that is a, a great word on that is like just knowing who you want to reach and what type of audience your music is going to connect with yeah, the the connection thing is, wow. You know, I had to I had to look at a bunch of uh, uh, younger players playing my music uh, the other night for some sort of contest in Korea or something, and um, it reminded me again that uh, you know when these young kids play music of mine, um, the the technicality is great. They in many ways they they've overcome all my issues with my anatomy and they're just playing technically the stuff better but it's what it's missing is the reason why i wrote it and why i played it and what was going through my heart the day that i recorded Mm. it it's just Mm. completely not there and it kind of falls flat it kind of ruins the moment and uh and and so this in a way it's a kind of a uh a proof or or it bolsters my my feeling that um, people telling their own story and putting their heart and soul into their performance is going to be picked up by the audience. Uh, and and when it's simply copied by somebody else, w- which it will be once it becomes popular, it will always miss that thing. You know, and and that's why when when David Gilmour plays comfortably numb, it will always be better than the rest of us doing it. Mm-hmm. It just will always be better. And, and it may not be as in time or in tune or have the right amp at the right moment, you know. And no matter what we do to model everything about what he did, it will never be as good as when he does it because he's not doing it. <laughs> you know? yeah. So if you turn that around, you say, oh, my God, I've got all this power. I'm the only one who's me. So I, you know what I mean? It's like the, I've Absolutely. got that emotional uh, integrity, authenticity. I've got all the ammunition to to make my music sound better than anybody else who's ever going to play it. You know, uh, that's I, that, I truly believe in that. And that is what will keep us from a true robot takeover. Yeah. Well, yeah. Although right now, robot takeover sounds pretty good. Just <laughs> <laughs> until they figure out what's going on with the virus, a little robot takeover just clean us up. <laughs> yeah. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Joe. It's really fun to hang here, at least uh, over Skype. And I hope that we get to hang in person sometime and play music. We got to play some guitar together. That would be great. You are so funky. It's ridiculous. Oh, thank you, Crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Tell you what, right there. That's the visceral reaction of hearing one of your heroes give you a really nice compliment on the guitar. That felt good. That felt good. But you know what? This ain't about me. It's about all of us. And I am excited that we now have on the record some encouragement and some wisdom from Satch himself. I'm somebody who's always been in search of my voice. And I feel like in the last couple years, I've been able to find my voice on the instrument, find my voice in music and in life. And that's fun to hear about Joe's thing and his encouragement to you guys. So you can take some of the things he said to heart. Hopefully you guys are finding out who you are as a person and as a musician and as a guitar player in that order. Okay, that's it. I'm not going to go into a spiel about it. I will see you guys next week when we have John Schofield. <laughs>